Oh, now it's green. Can, can you hear me now? <laughs> well, it was red, now it's green, so we're, we're thank you, TJ. So, should I start over from the beginning? <laughs> but the parables, we know the parable of the prodigal son, and it's so familiar to so many of us. And I have to confess that for most of my ministry, I always kind of felt like this was a feel-good parable. Yes, there's the disobedient son, but then he comes back, and there's the forgiving father, and there's the banquet. But lately, I've been doing more reading was in social science commentaries of the Gospels. And the social science commentaries are trying to capture the, the culture and, and the way of thinking in the first century, and it's a bit different than in the 21st century. And now as I look at that parable, I have a deeper appreciation for it because there is love of the Father in there, but there's also a tremendous amount of greed, of hatred, of self selfishness, self-centeredness, pain, suffering, grief, tension from the beginning of the parable to the end of the parable. So let me share with you why I have kind of changed my perspective of this parable. Jesus begins by saying, a father had two sons. Now, if you were in the first century, you were sitting there listening, you would immediately think of all the stories in scripture about a father who had two sons. There's Adam and Eve. They had Cain and Abel, and there was tension there. There was Abraham and Sarah. They had Ishmael and Isaac, and there was tension there. There was Isaac and Rebekah, they had Jacob and Esau, and there's tension there. So you're listening to this, and you know there's going to be tension coming. What kind of tension will it be? So Jesus said, a father had two sons. And the youngest son came to him and asked for his share of the inheritance. Now, as a 21st century person, that's unusual. Uh, but, but it's not the end of the world. I mean, here's a young man who wants to go on his own, establish his own life, wants to be set free and, and do his own thing. But that's a 21st century thought. In the first century, what that father would have heard, that son would have come to him and what he would have heard was, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't care whether you're alive or dead. I would like my inheritance now. I don't like you. I don't like this household. I don't like how we live here. I don't like our heritage. I don't like the village we're living in. Give me my share of the inheritance. That's what a first century father would have heard with that request. Now I have four sons. I don't know how I could handle that if one of my sons came to me and told me I wish you were dead. And so this father has this, what do we, does he give his share of his inheritance to the son? I mean, the son doesn't like the father, so what's he supposed to do? Now, the Talmud is the, a Jewish, uh, is the primary source of Jewish religious law and theology and a guide to everyday life. The, the Babylonian Talmud says a father should never give his inheritance away before he dies. That's what the Talmud says to do. And here the son has been rude and doesn't even like the father, but yet this father gives his share of the inheritance away. According to the book of Deuteronomy, if you have two sons, how you divide up the wealth is the young son gets one third and the elder son gets two thirds. 
So he gives the young son his third, and he takes and goes with it. And then he offers his other two-thirds to his elder son. Now, we live in a, a right-wrong culture. What you did was right, or what you did was wrong. They lived in an honor-shame culture. Now, what an honorable son would have done when his father came and said, here is your share of the inheritance, an honorable would have said, son said, no, 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 dad. No, you keep it. I respect you. I want to live under your household. I hope you don't die for a long, long time. No, you keep it. And after you die, I'll be honored to receive it. That's what an honorable son would have said. So this father has two sons, both greedy, both don't respect the father much, don't care much for it. And so the young son takes the money and heads off to a faraway land, and he loses it in wild living. Now you would think, can this father have any more pain in his life, any more shame than that? But you see, he loses his wealth to Gentiles, to Gentiles. The Talmud says that if a young man in a village goes off and loses his inheritance to Gentiles, here's what the Talmud says that village is to do. If that son tries to return, you're to get an earthenware jar, fill it with burned nuts and corn, and smash it at that, that young man's feet, and scream at him and yell his name, and he is cut off from the village forever. That's what the Talmud says to do. Well, here the young man lost all of his wealth, and now he's in hard, hard times. He's starving to death. He's hired out as a hired man. He's the, feeding the pigs, and the pigs are eating more than, better than he is. So he decides to go home and has this speech in his mind, coming home. And as, as he's coming home, the father does another amazing thing. I mean, to me, as I see the parable now, how much pain and suffering can this father endure? And yet his love is still there. So the son is coming home. And what does the father do? The father hikes up his long robe and begins to run because for the love of the son, compassion for the son, he needs to get there before the village gets to him. He's got to get there fast. And in biblical days, a patriarch never runs. Aristotle put it this way, great men never run, no matter what. And he's running. He's running for all can see. He does not, his love for his wayward son is more intense than the shame he is receiving. And he runs, he runs to the young man, he embraces him, kisses him in front of everyone. He tells the servants to go get the best robe in the house. That would be his robe. And put a ring on his finger. And put sandals on his feet because only slaves go barefoot. And kill a fatted calf, not the sheep. Not the goats, not a chicken. The best thing we have, a fatted calf, for this son of mine was lost, is now found. He was dead and now he's alive. And now there's a lot of tension right here. Will the village accept his decision? Or, or will they reject the whole family? Because he does not know what they will do. He's taken a huge risk to try to reconcile his son. 
And, and, and then the village accepts it, and the party begins, the house. But this family doesn't seem to get anything very right. Did anybody notice the elder son's not there? Did, did anybody think to go out and notify the elder son? I mean, it's, so here the elder son's been working all day. He comes in, and he hears a party going. Everybody else got the invitation. And so he said, what's going on? And the servant says, well, your brother, who shamed us all and brought shame to our family, to our village, he's returned and your dad has killed the fatted calf. And the brother is angry. And I can understand how angry he is. Well, first, he didn't get an invitation. It seemed I'd be common courtesy. Who gave permission to kill my fatted calf? Because the father's given him all the wealth. That's his wealth. He should have at least been consulted, don't you think? That, that should we kill the fatted calf? I don't think we should even kill a chicken for that guy. And, and then what, what about... Uh, I have to support now, not only the father, I have to support this wayward son too. And he's angry and he refuses to go in. And see, the party is going on and he refuses to come in. That is another insult to the father. He refuses to accept the father's decision as the patriarch of the family. The father is hurt. And what the father should do, according to first century culture, he should stay there and party with it, celebrate the return of his son, and as soon as everybody leaves, go and slap happy that boy. But he doesn't. He goes out and he begs the father, I mean the son, to come in. He begs for him to come in. In first century, a father never begs a son. How many things has he done that's shameful in the eyes of the culture, but his love is so strong, he does not care. He will do anything to try to bring the family back together. But he goes out. It's so important for him to have the son come back in. Gregory Jones, in his book, has this interesting observation about forgiveness. And this is what it says. People are mistaken if they think of Christian forgiveness primarily as an absolution of guilt. The purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of communion, the reconciliation of brokenness. The primary purpose is not just to have the, the sin forgiven, but to bring the community back together, to, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's why he's out there begging the son to come in. Let's heal this. Let's bring communion back together. That's the purpose of forgiveness to bring back together. But that's where the story ends. We don't know how the parable ends. It kind of reminds me of the book of Job, where Job has got the word from God to go preach to the people of Nineveh because they're terrible and God's thinking about destroying them. But Job, I mean, pardon me, Jonah, and Jonah hates the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah goes in the opposite direction. Then you have the storm and the large fish who spits him on the, on the ground. And he goes and he preaches and he preaches repentance, but his heart's not in it. And the people miraculously repent and God spares the city of Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He goes out and pouts on the hillside because he hated the people of Nineveh and he wanted them destroyed. That's kind of what that elder brother is doing. He does not like his younger brother. 
He doesn't not like the shame and pain he has brought to the family. And he ignores his father's pleading. But as I was preparing this sermon, I was doing some morning devotions, and I ran across a quote by St. Teresa of Avila in the 16th century. And here's what she said. From silly devotions and from sour-faced saints, good Lord, deliver us. Well, I've had my share of sharing silly devotions, I'm sure. But sour-faced saints, how do saints get sour-faced? And then I thought of the elder brother. If he stays out and refuses to join the family and holds that bitterness and anger about the brother, he'll get sour-faced. If he decides to go into the party and celebrate and eat, but still hang on to his grudge and hatred and anger for the brother, after a while, even though he's part of the group, he's going to become sour-faced as well. But see, C.S. Lewis has this nice quote that I like. He said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. The younger son in the parable can't go back and change the beginning, but he can start there with this amazing love of a father who, who has no bounds, that love is beyond comprehension for that young son. Will that change his life from now on? Will the elder son finally recognize the depth of love the father has and change his life? I mean, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome and said, do not you know that the kindness of God is supposed to cause us to change our heart and our lives? And says, Jesus told this parable about God's love for us that is beyond all comprehension. That's the God is revealed through Jesus Christ. And then I got to be thinking, I've encountered some sour-faced Christians in my life. I have, and, and, and the image that just jumped first to my mind is those that kind of confront you and yell at you, are you saved? Do you know if you're going to go to heaven now or do you going to go to hell? If you don't change now, if you don't, you're going to hell. I don't sense a lot of joy there. <laughs> I, I feel condemnation. I feel anger. I feel bitterness. And then I go back to thinking, if the only reason they are following Jesus because they want to get to heaven. If that's their primary purpose of following Jesus, because I just want to get to heaven, so Jesus said i got to love God and love my neighbor as myself, and so if I, I'll try to do that, but I really don't want to do it, but, but if I don't do it, I'm afraid I won't get into heaven, so I've got to do that to get into heaven. And there's that they're grudgingly trying to love your neighbor. It's, it's grudgingly trying to give money to help the poor because I'm supposed to, but I don't really want to do it. Uh, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I, I, I see saints becoming sour-faced because Jesus in the Gospel of John put it this way, if you love me, keep my commandments. God has promised us life beyond death, but the reason we're called to follow Jesus and, and seek to love our neighbor as ourselves to seek to live a life of love following the example of Jesus is because God's incomprehensible love for us is revealed in the parable of the prodigal son. And to respond to try to please God, to love God back as God loves us. I don't think trying to follow Jesus out of love 
will cause anybody to be sour-faced. So let us pray. Eternal and gracious God, your love for us is amazing beyond words. For in the parable, no matter what the sons did, no matter how many times they insulted, demeaned, degraded, you still love them. Help us to recognize ourselves in that parable as well. And even though the mistakes we have made and the things we've done wrong from time to time, let us recognize your love for us is still there. And help us to respond to your love with love for you and our neighbors. This we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.